When I went to seminary, it was 1996, my first year, and the very first official action was to gather with um, our support group. All the incoming students were grouped in uh, uh, groups of 12 or so, and we all had an advisor, and we had a, a senior who was about to graduate who would uh, sort of lead us through. So this senior uh, was there with us at our very first meeting. We were all nervous. I was certainly nervous. I assume everyone else was. And the first thing he asked was, so who, who are your, who's your advisor? Because we all had different advisors, uh, faculty advisors, to help us choose classes and to kind of walk with us, certainly through that first year. And we were all going around telling who our advisor was, and, and I was looking at this piece of paper I'd gotten in the mail, and, uh, and I said, my advisor is Dr. Monfred Hoffman. And you could almost hear the senior go, oh, like that. And I, and, and I could read his face that, oh, man, what are you about to tell me? And he said, well, he said, we'll all have a special prayer for you, Mr. Trotter. Uh, uh, Dr. Hoffman is retiring next year, and Dr. Hoffman's been here a long time, and Dr. Hoffman um, sometimes can be a little harsh, and that was kind of the way he described him. So, and by the way, if, if uh, Jack Wilson were here, Dr. Jack Wilson, who's a member of our church and esteemed Sunday school teacher, has, I don't know, 15 or 20 postgraduate degrees. He knows Dr. Hoffman actually very well. Um, Dr. Hoffman's gone now. Uh, but Jack was responsible for helping bring him actually to Candler School of Theology years ago. For any who know Jack Wilson, you can ask him about Dr. Hoffman. So, so, that was, so that was it. So I go to the next big thing that we do, and that's go to chapel. I went to the chapel service, and at this chapel service, all the faculty introduced themselves. And it was, some of them were funny, uh, little comments they made. And then they got to the church history department, and there was this young, fresh-faced professor, newly tenured, who, uh, who stood up and said, and I cannot remember his name to save my life. I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I'm an adjunct professor of church history. And Dr. Hoffman stood up, and he looked around at the gathering in the, in the bishops in the in the canon chapel, and he said, "I'm Dr. Manfred Hoffman, and I am church history." <laughs> well, see. I, I remember seeing some of the faculty members grin. I don't know how often he uses that line, but I just remember my heart stopped, and I thought, oh, my gosh. So, so here it is. So I have my first meeting with Dr. Hoffman, and he's my advisor. And so I sit down with him, and I notice immediately that the first impression, he's not, he's not gruff or harsh. He actually has this soft face, and... Uh, we shook hands, and he said, he's, I was in his office. He said, sit down. Tell me about yourself. And I told him that, you know, I was second career and that I had just gotten my bachelor's degree, and, and I was intimidated by being there. I was married. I had two small children, lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and was commuting back and forth every week. And he smiled, and uh, he said, you already have a load, Mr. Trotter, and you haven't taken a class yet. And I said, yes, I know. So, so he helped me choose classes, and I wanted to take Greek. And one of the first pastoral things he said to me, he said, no, Larry, 
don't take Greek. It's too heavy. You have, you are, my German accent's probably terrible, but, but, but he, he, uh, he, he, that's the way he spoke. No, it's too heavy, too heavy. Don't. He said, <laughs> basically he said, there are books that can give you all the information you need to about Greek. Don't do that. That was the first of many pastoral pieces of advice of advice he gave me. So let's fast forward. My meetings with him were always very positive. And I started to warm up to him to the point that um, I wasn't afraid when I was in his presence. And that spring, the second semester that spring, um, Christy, our younger daughter, uh, broke her leg for the same, broke her other leg, her thigh, at a birthday party riding a bike that had handbrakes. And she'd never ridden a bike with handbrakes. And the bike started going down the hill in the front yard, and she was pedaling backwards as fast as she could go, trying to get that bike to stop. And it wouldn't. She went up in the middle of the road with a broken leg. So she was going to be in Children's Hospital for at least two weeks. They had to put her in traction before they could set the leg. It was a long story. But I, so Dr. Hoffman, I had his number and I called him and I left a message on his machine and he called me back. I expected I would never hear from him. I didn't know what to do. Finals were coming up in two weeks. I was going to, Lynn had just gotten out of the hospital herself. I was going to have to stay there with Christy. And what was I, I couldn't go back to school. So I called Dr. Hoffman and, and he called me back. And he was so pastoral on the phone, he said, Larry, we, we, you can handle this. I will help you. Tell me what finals you have coming up and who your professors are. One of them was with him. And the final exam in his class was an oral exam. They were notoriously hard where you would be in there with four other students and he would quiz you and, uh, and you would have to just come up with these answers in front of the other students on the spot. So he helped me get in touch with the other professors. He helped me get the information I needed so that I could actually sent some of my books to me so that I could study. I mean, it was, he, was, he was wonderful, and, and we became friends. And so the final thing I will say about him, when it came time for the oral exam, um, it, he, he, they, they, it was hard for the other students. Like for instance, the very first question he asked the student was, it was, it was something to the effect of, um, describe the dialectical tension between imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness in the context of a comprehensive view of Wesley's soteriology. Mike could probably answer that. And I was thinking, oh, I'm so glad that's not for, I'm so glad. And, and every question of the first four guys in front of me, who were all I've become friends with, they were all like that. And I'm sitting over there, and my heart is pounding, and my palms are sweaty. And it came to me, and Dr. Hoffman looked at me, and he said, Larry, tell me something about Wesleyan theology. <laughs> and I could hear my friends going, oh, God. And so I, did, so I did, and I had several, I did know about Wesleyan theology, I, and so I, I, gave him a, I gave him a good answer. I got an A in the class, and Dr. Hoffman retired the next year. Some people didn't like him. I think the people who didn't like him were the ones who never had a chance to get to know him. They were afraid of him, and, they, they lived, they, and, and their relationship with him was based on someone else's experience. My experience with him was very different. And, and that is usually the case whenever we get to know someone, particularly someone that we're intimidated by. When we have an opportunity to develop a relationship with that person, the way we approach them 
changes. And instead of approaching in fear and trembling, we approach with, with great positive anticipation and with great joy and expectation of what the next engagement will be like. So we continue our sermon series, Facing Jerusalem, and today we're going to talk about facing God, and we're going to, and we're going to use the Lord's Prayer that we find in Luke's Gospel, uh, and we're going to read it in a minute. But the one thing I want to say at the outset and try to connect this story about Dr. Hoffman and today's passage and what I want to say is very simple. Usually, I know when I've preached either Matthew's version or Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, I usually teach it as, as, a, as, a, as, as a template for our own prayer. And certainly, it can be used that way. It gives us wonderful lessons about prayer. But it is equally just as important to, to approach the Lord's Prayer as not just a lesson on how to pray, but a lesson on the character of God. Because until we understand fully the character of God and who he really is and not who we think he is or what someone else says he is, when we understand who he really is, then we approach him in prayer very differently. And this prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray as much as anything is a study on God's character. And the whole idea is so that we can approach him in the same way Jesus approached him. That's how Jesus lived this life on our planet. That's how he went through his ministry. He didn't pull rabbits out of a hat. He wasn't playing tricks because, yes, he was fully God, but he lived fully as a human being. Everything he did was, was out of the power of God that was flowing through him into the world based upon that relationship. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds enticing to me. I want that kind of relationship with God. And so, let me say this as a way to, to kind of start the conversation. Prayer is a conversation between a child and a loving parent who listens and acts in love. Now, prayer is mysterious and volumes have been written and we all have read many of books about prayer. But that's where I want to come from. That's where I want to start from and land on this morning. Prayer is a conversation between a child and a loving parent who listens and acts with love. Now, we're going to go through um, uh, Luke chapter 11, the, fir the first 13 verses. This, this is, a, this is a more of an austere version of the prayer. You go to Matthew and you get something that sounds more like what we recited at the end of Mike's beautiful pastoral prayer uh, that he gave, uh, thinking that I would be in here to do that, but the second song ran long in the other service. So thank you, Mike, uh, for on the spot becoming also the one who would pray. Uh, and and, and Luke's, Luke's version of the prayer uh, is much shorter and to the point. So let me read it, beginning with verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And pause for just a second. Uh, great teachers and rabbis often taught their disciples how to pray. They all prayed in a specific way, and they developed these patterns for prayer that identified them. And apparently John the Baptist had one of those, and Jesus' disciples wanted, wanted one of their own sort of prayers, a way to identify them. 
So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give each day, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone else who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we thank you for preserving these words. We know that your written word always reveals to us the living word. And we pray, O oh God, as we, as we look over this prayer and as we think about it, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we might come to you boldly as Jesus did. In his name we pray. Amen. So, again... As much as this can be an outline for prayer, and, and by the way, we're going to get to that in a minute, it's a character study on the character of God. And, and that's how I want to approach certainly these first verses. And the way I want to do it is take these first four verses that are really all about God. And, and I want to look at this whole thing by looking first, looking up. And, and that's, I know, I know God is with us here on earth, but if you will uh, bear with me, the idea of God being in heaven and heavenly things, because it does talk about his kingdom. So first we look up and then we look down because that happens in this prayer. Now, I'll show you what I mean. First we look up. First word in the prayer, Father. And we hear that a lot. And some, team, some people are put off by that because uh, does that mean that God was a man and our mothers don't count? Well, of course not. And go, no, God was not a man. Uh, God is God. God is spirit. But we have personifications. We have, we have ways of understanding God in, for, in human terms to help us understand something of the relationship. And, in, and certainly in Jesus' era, uh, the father carried a lot of weight in the family. And so we don't, we don't have to read anything into our culture. And we're not excluding anybody with this. But I also don't want to miss the power of that word by just saying parent. Okay? Is, are we okay with that? I mean, Jesus said father. And it's not just father. And you've heard preachers say this before probably. But the actual translation of the word as it comes through Jesus who spoke Aramaic, translated into Greek, and then we get some version of it in English is dad, daddy. It's a term of intimacy. Um, but even before we think about that, the fact that, that Jesus' whole prayer starts with his address to God as Father is unusual in that culture. Because in that culture, there were lots of pagan gods, little g gods, I like to say. And sometimes those gods had multiple names depending on uh, the reason 
you were approaching them. And the God might have this name if you needed this, and this name if you needed that. And so for the original hearers, they were probably aware of that. But there is but one God. And so Jesus uses simply one word to address him, Father, a term of endearment. And in fact, uh, this very familiar term is fleshed out in those last verses that I read. The part about, oh, where, where did it go? Come back. The part where it says, which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake or asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? No, you would do anything you could to give good gifts to your children. That helps explain that whole idea of father. This is the one you can trust. This is the one you are comfortable with. This is the one in whose lap you sit and you talk about the day and you, and you share an intimate moment with. That's, that's the father we have here. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. And then we have hallowed. Hallowed. And, and, that's, and our word sanctified comes from the same Greek. And it just means set apart. And you know, it's funny, in, uh, Jesus never missed a chance to take a jab at, at the Roman government and then later on other New Testament writers as well. Because, you know, the reigning Caesar of the day, they, you know, in this case, uh, Pontius Pilate, would, would, uh, who, who was the governor at the time, would they thought they were hallowed, and they thought they were set apart, and they liked to come off to people as little g-gods as well. And so there's a lot of freight with that word, as Jesus says, hallowed. And that is, yes, we have a God who, is, who wants us to, to approach him in great intimacy, but we also must remember that he is holy other, W-H-O. L-L-Y and H-O-L-Y. He is holy other. He is hallowed. He is set apart. He is sanctified. Um, he is the majestic, holy creator and sustainer of the universe who we can approach as the perfect parent with intimacy. That's what those two words are telling us. Prayer connects us with the source of all love and power in the universe. Let that sink in. When we pray, we are accessing all of the love and power in the universe every time. Don't let that be lost on you. And so now we, now we, so we've been looking up. This is who God is. Now we lower our gaze just a bit. Your kingdom come. You know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he's not just you know, sharing some good ideas with a world that needed some good ideas. He was actually forming the contours of the coming kingdom with every word. Blessed are those who are humble enough to want the best for others. Blessed are the peacemakers. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't take divorce lightly. Love your enemies. Give to the needy. Please God and don't worry so much about money. These were all... These were all contours. These were all part of the landscape of this coming kingdom that Jesus is saying we should pray that that kingdom comes sooner or later. And, and it's so beautiful that Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer that asks for that because he's the one who came to connect the two. He's the one who came to actually make it possible for the kingdom of heaven to become the kingdom 
on earth. Jesus came to connect up there, what's up there, with what's down here. So then we're, we, as our gaze lowers, we're looking down more and, and looking at us and our needs. And that's not to be left out of this prayer. Give us our daily bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Um, we can trust that we're going to have what we need. And it's interesting that all of these connect dead on with Jesus as well. Give us our daily bread. Jesus, I am the bread of life. And then he tells that story about the neighbor who bangs on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night. I need some bread. And, and the, the, the story, the moral of the story is if you just keep knocking, you know, eventually the person will give up and, and give it to you. And, and we can't allegorize that too much because God's not, whenever we pray to God with a need, God's not up there going, come on, I want to hear you say it one more time. That's not what's going on here. I think Jesus uses the illustration to help us remember that we can be bold. And if we have asked for something and we have a need, we can go back and we can go back and we can go back to God and it's okay. God is going to take care of it. It may, we may not fully understand his timing and how he's taking care of it, but he is. He absolutely is. Forgive us our sins as we forgive. Jesus came to remove sin's power over you and me. Forgiveness is what we find on the cross. But it's important to understand it's not quid pro quo. When we hear that forgive others, and, and in fact, I love Luke's version of it because of the way it's worded. Forgive us our sins for, not so that, or because we. Forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. It's not quid pro quo. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. And when we forgive others then, and we understand how that feels, then we understand more about the power of God's forgiveness that he offers to us. It's, it's like an object lesson when we forgive someone else of the, of the forgiveness that God gives us. Now, this one's tricky. Lead us not into temptation. Because in James, there's that passage that says, God never tempts anyone. And so, this is where it helps to kind of check out some other translations. And there are other translations, and one of them that I think is, is really good says, uh, instead of lead us not into temptation, it's save us from the trial or test. And the word for temptation actually probably uh, translates more literally to trial or test than it does temptation. And so when we read that, we're praying, we're praying God save us from the trial. Because we remember Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit for 40 days and had a trial tempted by the devil. And how did, how did Jesus resist? He quoted scripture. The power of God, there's so much power in the scripture. And that's how Jesus was able to fend off the temptation. And as we, even as we, as we ask that of God, please save us from the day of trial, we know that he can. And it's right there in his word and the power that we find in reading his word as the Holy Spirit interprets to us. There's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 141.4, that says, do not let my heart incline to evil. Now, I can't prove it, but I'll bet you that Charles Wesley uh, had read that psalm and was very familiar with that line when he wrote in the hymn that we sing sometimes, love divine, all love's excelling. He's got that great line that says, take away my bent to sinning. And it's really this line from the, Lord, from the Lord's prayer. Take away my bent to sinning. Please save me from the trial, O Lord. 
And he will when we ask. And all of those things reveal to us the character of God. He is this intimate Father who also is the the sanctified, most holy creator of the universe. That in itself, if we just remember that, he does have the power to do what we ask according to his will. And it's important to always include that in our prayers. And he wants us to come and ask. He does want to give us what we need um, on a moment-by-moment basis. He does forgive us of sin. That's how much he loves us. He writes off, if you will. He just writes off those debts, those sins. And he will be there at the, in the moment of temptation if we ask. So what I would like to do to wrap up is to now approach this as an outline for prayer. And, you know, the way I looked at this, and this kind of hit me this week as we, you know, it's good to recite the Lord's Prayer. Lynn recites the Lord's Prayer every time the wheels start rolling on an airplane when we're going somewhere, we're headed down the runway. Her eyes are closed, her hands are together, and I know what she's doing. She's praying the Lord's Prayer. You may have a time when you pray, and it's beautiful. But there's a way to use this outline then with our own praying. Think of it this way. I love blues. I love jazz. I'm not a jazz player. I'm not jazz. Mike can play jazz. I can't. I'm a blues guy. And one of the great things I love about blues is the opportunity to improvise, to make up stuff on guitar. Songs have chords, and the chords are the framework of the song. You have this chord, and this chord, and this chord, and this chord, and sometimes there's a melody that's written that goes over those changes. And we kind of have that in the Lord's Prayer. We have these segments, these chords, and then there is this melody that was written for it. But what we get to do then is improvise. And we go over the same chord changes, the structure of it's still there, but we can improvise with our own heart and soul and bring to God what's important to us and share that with Him. So I want to do that this morning as we, as we end. Um, I'm going to pray this first part Actually, we're all going to pray. I'm just going to pray out loud. And I'm going to say these words, and I'm going to go over the outline. And what I would invite you to do is when I say the word Father, when we start this prayer, think about, think about God and, and being able to approach him intimately with no fear and trembling, but instead to go with eager anticipation of who he is, knowing full well that he is hallowed, he is set apart, he's sanctified. That when is what does it look like if his kingdom were to come in your life? If his will were to be done in your life, what would that look like right now, today? What is your day? What is your need for today when we talk about daily bread? What sins do you need to have forgiven? Who do you need to forgive? And finally, What trial or test is the one that keeps coming around and seeking to drag you away from where God wants you to be? That's the idea. So you quietly, silently fill in the blank for yourself as I go over this form. I'll play the chords. You improvise your part. Let us pray. Father,
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen. We will never have the wisdom or courage we need to face our Jerusalems, whatever they are, without relying on the constant guidance and power we receive through prayer. Prayer is how we live for him in this world. My prayer is that we remember who this God is to whom we pray. Your prayer will be heard. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for Jesus who came to teach us so much, who came to live and die and now live again so that we might die to everything that kills our soul so that we might live more fully for you in this life and in the next one. Thank you, God, for hearing us when we pray, regardless of the form of our prayer, if it's one word screamed in the dark or if it's a soft prayer prayed at the table. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Concord United Methodist Church. This podcast is a ministry of Concord United, and we would love to hear from you. To contact us, please send an email to podcasts at concordunited.org with sermons in the subject line. For more information about Concord United, including worship times, service opportunities, mission efforts, and classes, please visit our website at concordunited.org. We also invite you to download and enjoy our daily devotional podcasts presented by the pastors and members of Concord United. Finally, we would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review of this podcast so that others can discover it and benefit from it.